0: Right, we're looking at the cardinal virtues or what you might call uh, as a whole this series uh, we would call virtue ethics or moral philosophy. Uh, This is what our reformed forebears would call it usually is moral philosophy. And we saw last week that according to the light of nature in man, which is the light of reason, that scripture clearly shows us that man not only knows there is a God and knows A good deal of truth about God from the light of reason, but also man knows what he is supposed to do and not do. That is natural law. And the way we categorize this and the way that we uh, parse this out is the category of the cardinal virtues. And we saw this last week throughout scripture and then in our own confessional reform tradition. And this week I want to pick up on this and look specifically at the cardinal virtues, the four cardinal virtues, justice, prudence, fortitude, and temperance. Last week we saw how that the Apostle Peter tells us in 2 Peter 1.5 that we are to add to our faith virtue, and in using that Greek word he uses that we translate as virtue, he's taking up a word that came from Greek philosophy and was used by hellenistic philosophy by the jews and it sums up moral excellence that's basically what it's getting at when we mentioned virtue it's moral excellence and with this in mind as christians just think with me for a moment imagine you are a christian businessman and you need to hire an employee you've got two men who have applied for the job the first one is a christian this christian uh, we Remember we looked at the theological virtues of faith, hope, and love. He claims to have faith in Christ. He's made a profession of faith. He claims to have hope in Christ for the future. And he claims to have the fruits of love in his life produced by the Spirit. So this man who's a Christian, he shows up late to work every day. He's lazy. He's a troublemaker on the job. He doesn't respect authority that's over him. And he's always cutting corners. He can't be trusted. He has to be, you have to stand over him and tell him everything to do. He does not apply himself to learn the skills necessary to do the job. You have to hold his hand with everything. He's extremely lacking in prudence and the other virtues that we'll we'll talk about in a little while. The other guy is a non-Christian. Let's even say he's a pagan. Let's say he's, Hindu, and he's not at all a worshiper of the one true God in Christ, but let's say this man shows up early to work, he always does his job, you don't have to tell him to do his job, he goes above and beyond what he's required to do, he's respectful toward his boss and the authorities, he's respectful toward other co-workers, and he encourages them to do well, and these are your two options for men to hire. As a businessman, which one of those men would be a better hire for you? Which one would be better for the company and the work you're trying to do and for the other employees that you have? I I know this is a no-brainer, but we're getting somewhere with this. Now, just imagine both of those guys are Christians. The one lazy, trifling, troublemaking guy And the other one that's upright in moral virtues, both of them are Christians, which one would you hire? That's even more of a no-brainer. You'd want to hire the Christian with a good work ethic and that has a good uh, approach and attitude toward others and toward authority. If we were to ask the reason why, why would one of these men make a better worker than the other one? The reason is moral virtue. One is highly deficient in moral virtue, and one excels in moral virtue. And we'll see that the pagan, even though he doesn't have true and full virtue, because only Christians have that, yet he is imitating the good and true moral virtue, which is known by the light of nature. And all this is to say exactly what the New Testament teaches us throughout That as Christians, it is not enough just to say, oh, we have faith, hope, and love, but rather we must cultivate moral virtue, and this is what adorns the gospel before the world that we live. That's what Paul says in Titus 2, 9-10, as he's speaking here of bondservants, slaves, but the principle applies to all Christians. He says, exhort bondservants to be obedient to their own masters, to be well-pleasing in all things, Not answering back, not pilfering, but showing all good fidelity that they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in all things. Paul is saying that the way we conduct our lives, and what he's describing here is moral virtue, that this reflects on our profession of faith in Christ, and it reflects on the gospel of Christ that we profess. It's extremely important for Christians, for all Christians, to excel in moral virtue, and to cultivate moral virtue. He says something similar in Titus 2, to 12, a few verses later. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age. One of the great purposes that Christ died to save us, one of the great fruits of our union with Christ, is that he changes us to a people of lawlessness, to a people zealous of good works, and this could be summed up in this regard as moral virtue. As Francis Turretin said, that the imitation of Christ lies in the moral virtues, and he also mentions that it's one of the ways that we know we're a true Christian is whether there is moral virtue or not in our life. When we talk about virtue William Ames defines it this way, Puritan William Ames. Virtue is in habit whereby the will is inclined to do well. He cites Hebrews 5.14 where it says that by reason of habit they have their senses exercised to discern good and evil. And he says it is proper to virtue to be praiseworthy. Not only the philosophers teach, but also the apostle Philippians 4.8. If there be any virtue, if there be any praise, think on these things. So again, our confessional reform forefathers saw it that there were even pagan philosophers who knew this truth through the light of nature, and Paul taught the exact same thing is what he's reminding us. Virtue is opposite of vice. We think of vice today like maybe gambling, or somebody might think of smoking as a vice, or something of this nature. Vice is anything that's not virtue, And he he reminds us, Ames reminds us that it's anything whereby men are inclined to do evil. Evil instead of good. The Danish reformer Niels Hemmingsen, who lived in the 1500s up till 1600, put it this way. Cicero, the ancient philosopher. Cicero defines virtue or erite that Peter used in 2 Peter 1.5. Add to your faith virtue, erite. Cicero defines virtue, or erite, in the following way. Virtue is a habit of the mind consistent with nature, moderation, and reason. Remember how we saw back in the preaching series a few weeks back with Joseph that he had his lower appetites in subjection to right reason, and that is one definition of virtue. We're not ruled by our lower appetites, by our belly, etc., our loins, but rather... We have those appetites in subjection to right reason. That's part of what virtue is talking about. And he says, The ancients, moreover, define it thus, Virtue is the art of living well and correctly. And the fruit of virtue is a well-ordered life. Richard Muller tells us that virtue is to be understood as a habit or disposition ordered toward the good. So specifically, the cardinal virtues... What are they? Well, they're four: justice, prudence, temperance, and fortitude. And cardinal simply means hinge in the Latin, the hinge virtues. All the other virtues hinge on these. And one author has put it this way, that uh, all virtues hinge on these four. Muller tells us that the cardinal virtues for the Reformed Orthodox, our Reformed forefathers, was this, that they... They cited such texts as Psalm 119.66 and Titus 2.12, which we read a minute ago, and argue that the moral virtues operate according to right reason, so they can be known by the light of nature, uh, operating according to right reason. Before we get into the cardinal virtues, I just want to give a few points to remember. The cardinal virtues are distinct from the theological virtues, So when we hear the gospel, God, through the preaching of the gospel, brings us to faith in Christ, regenerates us, imparting the gift of faith and repentance. God unites us to Christ in our effectual calling. When that happens, God imparts to us, he infuses us with faith, hope, and love. Think about infusion like this in this context. My wife had to have a blood transfusion years ago after one of the babies was born. She had some complications and had to have a transfusion. It saved her life. That's a type of infusion. That's not something you work for. Uh, That's not something you cultivate by habit. It was something freely given and infused into her body to save her life. The cardinal virtues we have to cultivate by habit, as we'll see. This would be similar to, uh, say, if my wife was uh, working out, exercising, dieting in a certain way. She's trying to cultivate health by habit. That would be like the cardinal virtues. But the theological virtues are not cultivated or gained by habit. They're infused by God's grace at your regeneration. God gives you the gift of faith whereby you believe God and all that's revealed about him. And specifically, you lay hold of Christ and believe upon him. He gives you hope whereby your will is inclined to everything God has promised. You desire it. And he grants to you love whereby God has given you his love in Christ and now you love God as a result and you love your neighbor through God. That's theological virtue. It's distinct from moral virtue and we must must remember that. Yet the cardinal virtues are necessary to Christians. William Ames reminds us that some say the subject of ethics or virtue ethics is a man-approved, good, and honest. But the subject of divinity is a godly and religious man. Okay, he's saying some will make a distinction. Okay, you've got those with cardinal virtue, morally upright, and then you've got the religious man that has theological virtues. He's saying that Paul disagrees with this, and the apostle doth expressly teach that divinity instructs us not to live only piously and religiously, that is theological virtue, but also temperately, justly, that is, approvedly and honestly, that is cardinal virtue, and that's from Titus 2.12. Teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age. So, the cardinal virtues are necessary for Christians. Also, they are embedded by God in the created order, and thus they're known from the light of nature, or the light of reason. This is why philosophers like Plato can articulate the cardinal virtues, and what he's saying is exactly how Scripture defines moral virtue. Why is that? It's because he knew it from the truth of God revealed in the light of nature. And yes, remember, it is limited in what it reveals. Nobody can be saved by the light of nature. But it still is God's truth, and it's from God as its source. And in this, we, we realize that Cicero or Plato or Aristotle did not invent the cardinal virtues any more than Isaac Newton invented the law of gravity when he studied it. Rather, they simply studied and articulated what is just is there. It just is reality. It just is how God has created the order of the universe another thing to remember is that all virtue is aimed at the good and in this unbelievers can attain some natural good unbelievers can do civil good and this is what we've held in our tradition through through the centuries in the reformed tradition they can do civil good they can do moral good but they cannot do any spiritual or saving good. So, for instance, when a soldier willingly sacrifices his life to save his comrades, that's a a good, that's a virtuous act. When they grant the Congressional Medal of Honor for that man's self-sacrifice and being willing to save, uh, to, to lay down his life for his others, greater love has no man than this, than a man lay down his life for his friends, our Lord Jesus tells us but yet this is not a spiritual good or a saving good. A man can do civil good. Um, We could look at good rulers throughout history, and John Owen mentioned this, remember, last week, how that if we look at the different pagan Roman emperors, If we denied any degrees of moral virtue among them, this would upset the whole fabric of society. There were some who were more virtuous than others, and it was a better government and better society, even among unbelievers. But Christians know the good to be God in Christ, and we aim at both natural and supernatural good. As believers, we aim to flourish as much as God allows us naturally. Remember we saw with Job before his calamity? He flourished with natural created gifts, but we also seek to flourish in supernatural good, that is, the theological virtues, faith, hope, and love, even if God takes away the created gifts, as we saw with Job. In this, we remember that unbelievers can imitate moral virtue. We saw it with Jethro, the pagan priest of Midian, that he had more prudence, he had more of the cardinal virtue of prudence than Moses did. And Moses could learn from his father-in-law. We saw how uh, Paul reminded the Corinthians that pagans had more moral moral virtue than they did in the regard that the Corinthians were allowing a man living in incest to be a member in good standing. And he said not even the pagans do this. So they can imitate moral virtue. And like Stephen Sharnock said last week, many heathens excel us in cardinal virtue. Another thing to remember is that true and full virtue is only for believers because it is only the believer in Christ who does what he does to the glory of God in Christ, with God in Christ as the ultimate goal of all we do. And therefore, only the Christian can be truly morally virtuous and truly and fully do moral virtue. We also need to remember that the cardinal virtues are distinct and yet inseparable. Each of these four virtues is interconnected and cannot be divorced from the others. As Thomas Watson put it in his work on the Beatitudes, he says, As they say of the cardinal virtues that they're strung together, so we may say of the graces of the Spirit, they're all linked and chained together Also, the cardinal virtues underlie and are assumed by the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments. So we might ask the question, if we as believers already have the Decalogue, the moral law summarized in the Decalogue, why would we want to study the moral virtues, these four cardinal virtues? What could we benefit from them? Well, this is how we can benefit. The cardinal virtues underlie and assume the Decalogue. So... For instance, the virtue of justice. Okay, in the first table of the law, justice is rendering to everyone his due. The entire first table of the law, commandments toward God, is rendering God his due. That's the moral virtue of justice. Why is it a sin to have another God before God? Because it's unjust. God is the only true God. Why is it a sin to make a gra- graven image? It's unjust. It's unjust. Why is it a sin to violate God's Sabbath? It's unjust. We owe it to God. We are to render unto God his due, and these things are his due. Why are we not to use his name in vain? It would be unjust. We get into the second table of the law, sins against man. We'll see this and the other other three cardinal virtues. And we'll also see how they're interconnected. Justice, prudence, temperance. And fortitude, or courage. So, let's think about it like this with, with the Decalogue, with the Ten Commandments. Okay, the Ten Commandments are based on the eternal law. One of our forefathers, Benjamin Bedham, who wrote an exposition of our Baptist Catechism, he puts it this way, The moral law is a rule founded upon the perfections of God having its general principles in the light of nature. So if you take the Ten Commandments, underneath that are the moral virtues, underneath that is the eternal law, and we'll do it like, we'll, we'll illustrate it like a three-layered cake. Everybody likes cake. Um, as a three, Imagine it like a three-layered cake. At the base of it, at the center of it, there is the eternal law. The eternal law just is God who is perfectly just. Remember uh, um, divine simplicity that God is without parts. This means that it's not like uh, God has justice, like God takes to himself this attribute called justice that's super added to God. Rather, when we speak of the righteousness or the justice of God, we're just talking about God who is just. All that is in God is God. God is his own justice. And The perfect idea of justice in God we call eternal law. And Muller points out this is how our tradition defined it. The next layer is the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments. And this is the created manifestation of the eternal law. The Ten Commandments are not um, arbitrary things that can be laid aside as, uh, they're they're not positive law added for a time and then they go away. Rather, these just are the manifestation of the righteous God. You can know this from the Decalogue. And I've gotten this one backward, this is supposed to be, The third layer on the cake. The second layer is the moral virtues. This can be known from the light of nature that a human being ought to be just, prudent, temperate, and courageous, or have fortitude. And then the more specific uh, delineation or listing of this is in the Ten Commandments. But it's one law, and... The virtues and the Ten Commandments are simply two created manifestations of that eternal law. Remember how we saw last week the book of nature and the book of grace, which is scripture. The book of nature is all that can be known from the light of reason, naturally. Both of those books, the book of nature and the book of grace, are from God as their source And therefore, whatever truth God has communicated in nature is just as true as the truth he's communicated in Scripture. Although the truth in nature, uh, in the book of nature, is limited, we can't be saved by it. But, nevertheless, it's from God as its source. Lastly, and things to remember in approaching this, remember, as we study virtue ethics... That all our good works as believers are tainted by sin. We confess this in our Confession 19, 5, and 6. Even our best works are tainted by sin, but God receives our good works in Christ for the righteousness of Christ. And this gives us hope as we hopefully see and, and hold up a mirror to our own sinful flaws and blemishes and failures, and we seek to repent, we seek to cultivate virtue. Remember that you're doing this in Christ, that you're fully and wholly accepted by God in Christ, and you do this out of the overflow. So let's talk about what the virtues are. We'll give a brief summary and then cycle through these and give some examples and then drill down into each one. Justice, as we've seen, is rendering to each one is due. That is to God and neighbor, especially neighbor, when we're talking about the the cardinal virtues. Giving each one what they owe. This is why when a little child, uh, when when an elderly person comes walking by, that little child ought to stop and give them the right of way and let them go first. Why? That's the just thing to do. It's the fitting thing to do. They're rendering the respect that's due to that elder. That's just one of many, many examples we could mention. Prudence is the practical wisdom in knowing what to do to attain the good. So by justice, you have the idea of what the good is. By prudence, you use all the means necessary to attain the good. Prudence looks to the past and what you know from the past in memory. It looks to what you know from the present, and it plans to the future to attain the future good by those means fortitude is perseverance through difficulty to attain the good and then temperance is self-control over ourselves and the use of created goods to attain the good We'll unpack this some um, and we're reminded that the reformer Peter Martyr Vermigli said that these four famous virtues, prudence, justice, courage, and temperance, contain almost all activities of human life. The reason is because if you can see through this atrocious art and handwriting, it just is the natural manifestation, the the natural law known by the light of reason that reflects the eternal righteousness of God and is comprehended summarily in the Decalogue. That's why it touches all areas of human life. Okay, so if we realize it or not, we all use these virtues every day of our lives. This just gives, helps us have categories to think through them. For instance, and in giving this analogy, I in no way mean to trivialize what we're talking about, um, but I I think it will get at just the nitty-gritty practical aspect of what we're talking about. Think about a mother with a baby, and she has to change the baby's diaper on a daily basis and oftentimes many times through the day. What is the good in view that's known by justice? The good in view is a clean, healthy baby, right? What does prudence say about that baby with the dirty diaper? It says, I better get this diaper changed, or the child's situation is going to grow worse. It could even become very serious. By temperance, she cuts short her browsing of Pinterest. She would like to do that for another five minutes. She leaves her iPhone, and she goes and changes the diaper, and it takes great fortitude to do it. Sometimes, very great fortitude <laughs> to persevere through the difficulty to attain the good end, which is a clean, healthy baby. Okay, let's think about uh, think about this too. That with virtue, virtue is when you when you're able to do these things well and do them without resistance. It's just second nature. That's what virtue is getting at. It becomes second nature over time and by the grace of God and you can see this looking back through your Christian life how at first there are some things that were an extreme struggle just to get started and by the grace of God over and over overcoming those sins and growing in righteousness God has helped you where it's just second nature now and some of those besetting sins you don't even struggle with in the way that you did then yes you do still struggle but I think you know how God gives victory in, in these ways but Virtue is when you can do it with ease. So you take daddy who works 40, 50, 60 hours a week, and he doesn't change near as many diapers as mama, and he changes the diaper, he may have a lot more struggle with it, and he may really struggle for the fortitude necessary to wade into that situation. And the reason is because in this regard, mama has been cultivating the Cardinal virtue of fortitude on a daily basis and a multi-daily basis throughout the day in a way that daddy has not in this situation. That's why he struggles with it more, whereas she does it with ease. Okay, let's think about a man and his typical work day for a husband and father. Okay, the good in view that he knows by justice, he owes it to his family, he owes it to himself, and he owes it to his neighbor to work a job and take care of himself, take care of his family. And scripture tells us to also have it to give to those who are in need. He knows this by justice. That's the good in view. Prudence tells him if he doesn't get out of bed and go to work, he's going to get fired for laying out of work, and he will not be able to attain the good end. Temperance is when he sets five alarms to wake himself up and still struggles to get up, but he gets up and controls his he has self-control over his desire to sleep or his desire to go fishing with his buddies that day instead or whatever it may be that would prevent him from attaining the good he exercises self-control over it and pursues the good and then by fortitude he endures difficulty a difficult boss difficult work situation people at work he does not want to be around he goes through the pain and the difficulty and the daily obstacles to attain the good end of being able to provide for himself and his family and for others in need. That's just one, a couple of examples of how we use these virtues every day. So I want to briefly now give an exposition of the four cardinal virtues. So justice is rendering to each one his due. Now, when we think of virtue... We need to think of them each with uh, defect and excess, or defect and extreme. So, for every virtue, it is the, the mean between two extremes, or it may be above two extremes, but don't think about it like a decimal point. Think about it like the middle of the road. There is some spectrum in the middle of the road, but on each side is a ditch. There's defect and excess. So, with justice, the defect of justice would be laxity. Like, say, for instance, a father who will not discipline and correct his son or his children. This would be the defect. He's lax. The kids do whatever they want to do. They don't have any discipline or authority over them because their dad won't exercise it. He's lax. But then imagine an abusive father. He's cruel. That's the excess of justice. It's cruelty. Draco's law, every, every crime punishable by death, the law written in blood. You murder somebody, capital punishment, which is right and scriptural. You steal an apple, capital punishment. That's not right and scriptural. That's beyond justice to cruelty. It's a perversion of justice. We can see the example of it in Scripture in everything to do with covenant keeping. It's based on justice rendering to each is due. We can see it throughout the prophets, especially about protecting the fatherless and the widow. This is throughout the Old Testament. This has to do with justice. And we see the perfect example in Christ as he always rendered to God and neighbor what is their due perfectly and without fail. And he did this in our place. The next cardinal virtue that we'll consider in this It's prudence, that is, looking ahead to the good end and using all the means to attain it, all the best means to attain it. So if we lack prudence, this would be ignorance. It could be a very willful ignorance, or it could be a just that we haven't applied ourselves to study what we ought to do to attain the good end. The excess of prudence, the abuse of it, would be anxiety or paranoia. That's where you're so focused on planning for the future, that you're obsessing. Um, and this is not to make light of people that have this kind of uh, that are in this kind of situation. but my wife worked for uh, an individual one time. If that lady had a doctor's appointment next week, she would drive, she would have my wife to drive her to the doctor 10 times so she could time it and see how long it got to it took to get there so she could make sure she's going to be on time next week. That is an excess of prudence that goes into anxiety or paranoia and our Lord Jesus remember warns us about that about being anxious for things that are outside of our control for tomorrow. William Ames tells us that prudence is that whereby the strength of reason is used to find out all that which is right and to direct right all the means of it. We see examples of it throughout Proverbs, and we see the perfect example of prudence in our Lord Jesus Christ, who himself is the wisdom of God unto us, and who time and time again through the Gospels refuted the Jewish leaders because of his prudence to not step into their traps that they tried to lure him into in their discussions. All right, our next virtue is fortitude. Fortitude is the willingness to persevere through difficulty to attain the good. And the defect of this would be cowardice where we lack courage. We lack the courage to do what we know needs to be done. We shirk back from it. We don't do it because of some perceived pain or difficulty. And Scripture warns about this in Revelation 21, 8, that the cowardly will have their part in the lake of fire. I've heard people say, uh, I heard a man in a Muslim area overseas who said, I admire the Christian faith, and I would become a Christian if we lived in America, but I can't because if I did here, I would lose my job and everything and be cut off by my people. Scripture says the cowardly will not inherit the kingdom of God, and for those who are saved, God gives you the faith, hope, and love that you need that helps you and disposes you for moral virtue to be able to have courage. But we can define this, uh, this fortitude, this way. Uh, Ames, again, he says, Fortitude is the firm persisting in doing right, or doing rightly, enduring and overcoming all those difficulties which may arise. Muller tells us that it has to do with moderating or regulating the passions and desires and appetites to bring them into accord with right reason. It takes fortitude or courage to be able to stand up against your own desires, and to be able to go through difficulty to attain the good. This doesn't mean that you don't feel fear. If you didn't feel fear, you would be insane. You'd be a madman. But rather, it means you don't allow fear to control you. That's what fortitude is. It's like John Wayne said, courage is being scared to death, but saddling up anyway. Oh, yeah, you might feel scared, but you know what needs to be done. You wait in there and do it. That's courage. That's fortitude that we're talking about here. The defect is cowardice. Proverbs twenty-eight one: the wicked flee when no one pursues, but the righteous are bold as a lion. The extreme is recklessness. To Be reckless and foolhardy and take unnecessary risks and scripture warns about this as well we can see examples of fortitude in scripture galatians 6 9 and let us not grow weary while doing good for in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart what's the good in view paul tells us it is we shall reap but we've ha- we have to persevere which takes fortitude to reach that good end And we find, again, its perfect example in Christ as he prayed, Nevertheless, not my will but yours be done. And he perseveres through all of the crushing difficulty of the cross, difficulty we could never understand. And he perseveres through that for our salvation. The last, fourth and last of the cardinal virtues is temperance. Temperance is, again... Self-control over ourselves and created goods to attain the good end. Um, If mama doesn't have self-control over her social media time, she's not going to attain the good end of keeping a clean, healthy baby and changing the diaper. If daddy doesn't have self-control in overcoming his feelings of whether he feels like going to work or not, He's most likely not going to keep his job not be able to provide for his family. He's not going to reach the good end. Temperance is required. William Ames says, Temperance whereby all those desires which divert men from well-doing are assuaged and restrained. So makes virtue undefiled. The defect of it, if we don't have temperance, of course, is intemperance or... Lack of self-control. Remember Paul talking about the Cretans. The Cretans are always liars, slow bellies, evil beasts. He talks about false teachers in Philippians 3.19, whose God is their belly. They're so given over to their lower appetites, that's their God. Muller tells us that temperance uh, moderates the passions, desires, and appetites to bring them into accord with right reason. We read in Titus 1, 12 and 13. Or, or rather, we, we read in Titus 2. But in Titus 1 he talks about the Cretans being given over to intemperance. And he says, one of them, a prophet of their own, said Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true, therefore rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith. So for us to be intemperate, to have defect in the cardinal virtue of intemperance, Paul equates with not being strong in the faith. If we would be strong in the faith, this is one of the things we have to cultivate by the grace of God, by the help of the Spirit, is to cultivate virtue. The defect is intemperance, but the excess is austerity, being austere are harsh in this way with created goods that we have no enjoyment of created goods so for instance paul tells timothy in first timothy 4 1 to 5 that the spirit speaks of those in the last days who will give heed to deceiving spirits doctrines of demons speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron. Listen to some of the marks of these false teachers and these people deceived by doctrines of demons. Forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. So he reckons an excess of temperance These are certain manifestations of certain kinds of demonic doctrines and false teaching. Marriage is good and the marriage bed undefiled, Paul tells us in Hebrews. And God has given it as a good gift. All foods are to be received with thanksgiving from God. All created goods are to be received with thanksgiving from God and used unto the glory of God. Unless proven otherwise, the default is to assume all created things are given to us for the glory of God, to use for his glory. And the only way that's not the case is if we can't use it for God's glory, and then we shouldn't. If we can't give thanks to God for it, we have no business doing it. So this is the excess. We find this throughout scripture, one of the uh, the virtue of temperance, one of the fruits of the spirit in Galatians 5 is temperance. And we find its perfect example in Christ, as we saw a few weeks ago in the sermon series, in his temptation in the wilderness, as he exercised perfect and sinless self-control over every appetite that Satan tempted him in, including his hunger, turned the stones to bread. Let me mention briefly how these virtues are acquired, how do we... Cultivate these as Christians. Uh, Peter, martyr, vermigli points out that we're not born with these virtues and they don't grow like we grow teeth. Rather, they have to be cultivated by habit. And when we, we talk about habit, this, this is like being entrenched in this virtue to where it becomes easy, it becomes second nature. You think about Michael Jordan, footage of Michael Jordan soaring through the air. If you see how smooth he moves, nobody would even ask the question if he is the greatest ever basketball player. It shouldn't even be a controversy. It looks like he's flying all the way across the court. It's, it's unreal. But behind that smooth sailing that he does on the court, there were years of laborious work that went into it. And it became second nature to him. This is an analogy of how we are to, to cultivate virtue by habit. We have to cultivate the virtues all together. And this, will, this might encourage you. Remember, they're all connected. And so when you grow in one virtue, you grow in all the rest. Just like imagine four boats in the bay. Uh, The tide is low, they're sitting beside each other on the shore, the tide rises, one boat rises, they all rise together, that's how it is. So if there's a virtue that you, or, or more than one, that you especially struggle in, you'll grow in that weakest virtue as you grow where you're already stronger. And as spouses, you can help each other oftentimes, because most of the time your spouse will be weak in areas that you're not. And if you ask your spouse, ask your kids, they'll tell you of these virtues, which ones you're weakest and strongest in, and it'll help you to target and to be able to categorize where you most need to grow in sanctification in these areas, and in ways you can help your children to grow in these, even on a natural level. So this brings us back to the beginning, Second Peter 1, 5, add to your faith, virtue, So, in conclusion, if we were to ask about the two employees, which one is more glorifying to God, we know that the Christian that excels more in moral virtue is more glorifying to God in this world, and that's the desire of all of us. And we know that one great end that Christ died to redeem us, Titus 2.14, was to redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous of good works. When he says lawless deed, that's sins against the Decalogue, yes, but also against natural law and Peter tells us to give all diligence to this adding to our faith virtue and therefore to the glory of God the Father by the help of the Spirit and looking unto Jesus Christ I encourage you to seek to cultivate moral or cardinal virtue and with the reformer Niels Hemmingson we say may God the author of nature assist me by his grace okay in closing do we have any questions Yes, sir.
1: It seems to me that one of the big differences between the unbelieving mm-hmm. cultivation of these virtues and the believing is our motive. Mm-hmm. If I got that sort of out properly, see, like they do what they do often for the honor of man. That's no. the thing
0: that moves them. We're moved by something else. Yes, yes, unbelievers who imitate moral virtue do so with the wrong motive. It's not to glorify God in Christ. It's for some immediate good. It's never for the ultimate good, which is God himself. And I'm, I'm glad you brought that up, brother, because uh, on a natural level, it is more beneficial to people and societies to have greater moral virtue, but it can never save them. Like for instance, my grandpa's generation, when he went into the U.S. Navy at age 17, he told me up to that time in his life, he'd never even heard there was such a thing as a homosexual until he went to LA to get on the ship there and his training, everything, and he heard about that behavior. Okay, s- skip forward, fast forward to the generation coming on now. We're gonna have young people 17 years old in years to come that were literally mutilated as a kid to make to try to make them a different gender. And they're going to be dealing with all the baggage of that so far beyond just affirming the concept of homosexuality. They're actually trying to change themselves. Do you see what I mean about my grandpa's generation was much better off on a natural level as far as that goes? But their moral virtue still is, it's never for the glory of God in Christ. So it's not true moral virtue. Okay, we have one more question. So with unconverted children... Okay, so the question is, unconverted children, what's the best way to convey to them about these virtues and help them cultivate this, uh, since they are dead in sins, et cetera? Um, I would say that at the, at the younger age, they're not going to be able to comprehend very much about it, but you're gonna be, you, you know where they're weakest, and you can help them um, by training. Um, so, for instance, let's just take a little bitty child Anytime he wants a bite of food at the table, he screams bloody murder, and then he gets a bite. He screams at the top of his lungs, he gets a bite. So which cardinal virtue would that be a violation of when he screams every time he wants a bite of food? Temperance, any other? Justice, okay. All right, so if you curb him and teach him to ask in a way that's appropriate to the situation, you're cultivating temperance and justice in him by doing that. If you set up boundaries for them when they're tiny, like boundaries they could easily cross, like some kind of marker on the floor, and they're not to go across that boundary, and you train them over time to honor that, you're teaching them self-control. Um, and as they get older, you can reason more with them about it, but you can, you can be helping them with it long before they're able to comprehend it. Does that help any? Uh, yes, brother.
1: This may help, too. I don't know. It seems like... With, with little children the primary thing you're trying to communicate to them is that there is law mm-hmm. you're trying to communicate to them that there are standards and often with a little child that's all they can grasp mm-hmm. they can't grasp why they can't grasp motive Right. they can't grasp consequences but they, that they can get the standard so it depends on really the child and where that child's at at which point, but you first of all have got to give the concept of a standard and that there are standards in that child's mind before it seems to me before you can really go much beyond that. That's right, reasoning yes, sir. two-year-old. is frustrating. Yeah. Why? It's frustrating to the child and to the parent both. I know that's the typical way that parenting is. In the world we live in, you don't reason with a two-year-old. You teach them what's right, and once they learn what's right, then you can begin to talk about motives and reasons mm-hmm. and consequences and those kind of things. After they grasp the rudimentary issues.
0: Amen. Yeah, that's great. Establishing the concept that there are laws and that there are rules, and, and that there's authority over them that's delegated by God to the parent, and that the parent is making known to them in the law. That's just the will of God, you know, uh, the the righteousness of God. Uh, Yeah, that's really helpful.